Namaste to all of you and good evening. Let us continue our travel through the study of the wisdom of the Tibetan yogis in their precepts for the yoga disciples, the so-called yoga of the disciple, where they have gathered 28 chapters of gems of spirituality principles and teachings about spiritual life, about the spiritual practice. Tonight we move to the chapter number 13. I'm not taking discourses on all those 28 chapters. I've selected a few chapters which seem to be, to me, to be more practical, more direct. They have some chapters where they make metaphysical speculation, such as the ideas being the light of the mind should not be given up. The ten things that should not be given up. Because people sometimes think that you have to give up your mind. And Tibetan yogis say that is not true. That is a misunderstanding of a spiritual principle. Stopping the mind does not mean that you kill your mind or you give up the advantages of the mind. Because let us not forget that the mind and the intelligence separates humans from animals. It is also Socrates who said on a totally different spiritual meridian, Socrates said we cannot dispense of the reason. In the spiritual world you find a lot of people who are like brain dead, idiots, no reason, no common sense. Socrates says first there is reason. We cannot dispense of the reason because man is a rational animal and ra reason separates man from animals. And after reason, there is something even higher than reason, which is the spiritual intuition, but that comes on top of the reason. It does not replace the reason. That's why human beings have to start with a strong reason. And being rational takes you 80% of the way. And then there is an extra 20% which cannot be covered by reason. But that 20% should not be blown out of proportion and exaggerated. Each one of those has their function. So Tibetan yoga says ideas being the light of the mind should not be given up. Like when you are spiritual, you should still be creative. You should still think. You should still have ideas. You should still cultivate the power of the mind. Of course, the power of the mind is not enough. You have to go beyond the power of the mind, above the power of the mind. So there are such chapters which are very interesting for you to study and meditate. I did not select all the chapters. I would have to spend a season or two to be able to go through all the 28 chapters of this Tibetan primer of this yoga of the disciple. Today chapter 13 is one chapter which again shows this sharp, sometimes I could almost use the word merciless, of course it's not without compassion, but it's like it's really sharp, sometimes sarcastic sense of humor which the Tibetan spiritualists had, like, you know, there is no tolerance for weakness. If there is a weakness, show it to be a weakness. Many people say, oh, Swami, you know, I'm just a human being. 
the Tibetans say, then let's laugh of your weakness. Like if we don't cuddle it, we don't compromise with it, we make fun of it. Yes, we are not going to beat you up because of that. You are just a human being, but that limitation is nevertheless ridiculous and hilarious and it deserves to be mocked, it deserves to be laughed at. You don't just make peace with it, saying, after all, I'm just human. Yes, you are just human, pity for you, funny, ridiculous. You know, it's like, get up and stop being limited. Like, there is no need to pamper yourself, to soothsay yourself, just because you have imperfections. You can look at them with a certain sense of humor. In the 13th chapter, which is also divided in 13, it's called the 13 grievous failures. They give this epithet, grievous failures, like pathetic, you know, like what can you do? Which are the 13 things which make a human being pathetic, really? And some people say, oh, come on, stop being so big-headed, stop being so judgmental. Well, Tibetan yoga in the 15th century didn't listen to that. It was judgmental, it was big-headed, if you want to call it that, and it simply pointed mercilessly, compassionately, but mercilessly, it pointed at the flaws which appear in human existence. The first of them reads, if after having been born a human being, one gives no heed to the spiritual teachings, one resembles a man who returns empty-handed from a land rich in precious gems, and this is a grievous failure. To be born as a human being here, or as other Tibetan texts say, to be born as a free, well-endowed human being down here, is a gift of the gifts. I said it in other discourses on a different spiritual meridian, a Greek philosopher saw two hooligans drunk fighting on the shore of a river and in front he was followed by his disciples and he raised his hands to heaven and he said, the bloody idiots, if they would know how long you have to stand in queue up there to get a body down here. Like spirits are wanting to be incarnated, to get a life, either because life is useful for evolution, which is the metaphysical excuse, or simply because people are thirsty for life, they just want to live and to be in this James Bond movie of life, to have adventures of different sides. But point is, subjectively, every spirit feels like being born. There are some of you who say, I wish I were dead. Um, life is hard. I feel much better in the night when I dream. In the morning, I'm so depressed and it's so difficult to move my heavy body from here to there. And you cannot fly at the speed of light around and you cannot do this. I feel much better in my imagination, in my fantasy. This world is painful, limited, cold and hunger and thirst and pain and this and that. They're like there are people who have this semi-suicidal thing where they say, ah, I wish, you know, better dead than alive. I'm not really very welcome in this world. I'm not very adapted in this world. Even those people were born because they had the samskaras. They had the desire to be born. 
So it's a hypocrisy to come here and to say, oh, I wish I was never born. Then who the heck sent you here? Do you think there is a Spanish Inquisition on the other side of the universe which sent you to this planet, condemn you? You came yourself. Your own subconscious mind brought you here because you have desires. You still have desires which are unfulfilled. There are samskaras and vasanas in your subconscious mind which need to be fulfilled. No, it's like 1,000 places to see before you die. The bucket list, a hundred things to do before you die. Well, if you die without having done them, then you will come in the next life to do the rest, to continue the list. That's how the samskaras are. As long as you have something which is not fulfilled, that thing will make you reincarnate because it will determine a lack. It will determine a void somewhere in your aura, in your system. And then you will say, well, I lived for 5,000 lifetimes, but I never had a dramatic love story. Okay, go to earth and have a dramatic love story. You are going to have it. It's your dream. It's your need. If you would be detached and say, I don't need anything anymore, I've got everything, I let go of everything, then you wouldn't have to come back because there is nothing to come back for. So, subjectively, remember that every soul that is here on this planet, exception made probably of avatars and reincarnated souls, which come with a mission, spiritual great souls, which are born out of compassion, all the rest of the souls, 99.99% of the souls that you meet on the street, they are born because of their own desire. So it's a hypocrisy to say, I wish I was not here. You threw yourself head forward into this. And therefore, the human being wants to be born here. There is a superficial, selfish, mask personality reason, which is, I want falafels, I want a love drama, I want this, I want that, which is the egoistic part, the tip of the iceberg, the superficial part. And then there is a metaphysical part of it, which very few people are prepared to acknowledge and very few people can see, which simply says, my soul needs evolution. I am like a rough diamond that needs to be polished in a beautiful jeweler's shape. And out of 64 facets of my diamond, 56 are already polished, I'm still missing eight facets. So therefore I have to be born another eight lives to polish the missing eight facets of my diamond. When I finish this, I'm completely enlightened. I have finished all the aspects of the human soul. I have fulfilled everything that planet Earth can offer. I have finalized my evolution on, in the physical world and I can continue with deeper forms of evolution and self-improvement, self-help, self-advancement in some other world, in some higher level. As long as I still have something to fulfill here, my soul, the deeper levels of my subconscious mind, they know that and they send me here. They simply say, it's good for you to go to Earth because there you will learn some more. There are some yet unpolished facets of your diamond. You need to go through the polishing machine a little bit more. And either in that life I'm rich or poor, weak or strong, sick or healthy, 
man or woman, virtuous or sinner, or whatever polarity of life I get to experience, that is teaching me a lesson which polishes one of the facets of my diamond. Thus, if people would really acknowledge it, people would say, I am here, I am on this earth, because my soul needs more evolution. Because if my soul didn't need any more evolution, which could be fulfilled in a physical body, in a human body in particular, then I wouldn't have come here. I would have been sent by my own subconscious mind somewhere else. Thus, being born on this planet is a necessity. Either you are one of those 0.0001% avatars, tulkus, incarnated spirits that come from Shambhala or God knows where with a mission out of your own sweet will with compassion. Either it is that and then anyway life is necessary for you. Try to imagine what would have been for Jesus to wish to have been born on earth to deliver a salvational mission and then Herod the demonic king that was ruling at that time would have managed to kill him as a baby would have managed to catch him as a baby and kill him then like of course Jesus wanted to have the life which he had not because he had samskaras not because he wanted to eat falafels but because he came with a mission and he was bent on fulfilling that mission other people are not as free as Jesus was because this was a self-assumed thing. Other people are simply bound by their own karma, by their own dharma. They are bound by their own spiritual need to be born. But one way or another to be born on this planet is a precious gift because it, it offers you the opportunity, the possibility to fulfill your need and Tibetan yoga says if after having been born as a human being and some texts say free and well endowed because you can be born as a human being and you can be someone's slave for all your life it did happen a lot now there is no slavery although there is of course some sort of slavery on our planet there is financial slavery ideological slavery and many others which many people are not aware of but this is not the point the point is that in the old days there was explicit slavery and if you would be someone's slave and you would say I want to follow Jesus or I want to go to a Buddhist monastery to practice Vipassana your slave master would have taken out the whip and given you 25 whips on your back and said stop dreaming get to work and then, although you wanted to do spirituality or sexual tantra or whatever you want to do, you actually were just a slave and you had some other person having death and life power over you and you were not able to do what you wanted. In case you were a slave, this was just a sort of a very bad karma. It was a bad karma to be born in that and not to have freedom over your own life. I discreetly want to call your attention on the fact that many, many people today brag themselves, puff themselves up, up, thinking that today we are not slaves anymore. I beg to disagree and I invite you to meditate profoundly to see how many forms of discrete slavery they exist. Because slavery has evolved 
together with the society. As people became more self-conscious and more educated, better educated, then of course the slave masters had to become more sophisticated so that the slavery should not be very visible and rubbed in the face of people. But all this global village philosophy just aims to maintain a planet of workers, of working bees who are just earning enough money to live from this month to the next month and not to have any real freedom beyond a certain point. <clears throat> but anyway, in this freedom at least, in this limited freedom, you can come to Kopangan, you can meditate, you can do your spiritual practice. So as long as it is at this level, spiritual teachers are content because at least they can do their work and it is possible for any one of you to make some decisions, although don't expect them always to be easy decisions and easy to follow. So some Tibetan texts say a human being that is free and with a well-endowed body. If you are born with a Down syndrome or if you are born with thyroidian idiocy, your, uh, your access to spirituality, in spite of all the egalitarian Paralympics and other such initiatives of today, is unfortunately very limited. You, you, I have never heard of somebody that suffered from idiocy, which is a hormonal condition that damages the brain, or Down syndrome or others, who reached any form of spiritual accomplishment. Sure, that egalitarian people say, how do you know? Can you prove? Maybe, maybe, sure. We can speculate that maybe all the dolphins are enlightened. We can speculate that maybe there are aliens visiting us from the Pleiades. We can just lose ourselves in a world of phantasmagoric speculation oh, as much as you want. But as far as science and reason goes, we approximately know what's happening in the reality around ourselves. And that is why as far as that goes, you have to be a human being, you have to be free, and you have to have a body which is healthy. Like if you have brain damage, others. No, let's say you are a man and you have been castrated, neutered. Then for a castrated man, spiritual evolution becomes very, very difficult and very peculiar, simply because the power, the ojas coming from the testicles, is the one which sponsors much of the evolutionary efforts of, of, that, of men in particular here. As for women are the ovaries. And therefore, you have to be a human being, free and relatively well endowed, which means in the fullness of your mental, emotional, physical capabilities, so that when you put yourself to spiritual work, you can do it you have to be not handicapped in one way or another. Again, if you are missing a finger, that can be passed. I had a horrible accident in my childhood and I lost a finger. That many people can meditate and say, what would that prevent you to do from a spiritual standpoint? Pretty much nothing. Therefore, you can still go in spirituality, but then there would be other things which would be on the borderline. So here, the, the Tibetan text does not repeat, repeat all those conditions. It's like, you know, if after be having been born a human being, free, well endowed, and all that, one gives no heed to the spiritual teachings, 
One resembles to a man who returns empty-handed from a land rich in precious gems. That's a grievous failure. People would say, yeah, but maybe I'm not greedy. This is written common sense at the level of Tibetan common sense medieval society. Like Tibetans believe that if you are a farmer and if you go in a land where there is gold on the roofs of the houses and pebbles made of diamonds and rubies and sapphires on the ground, you should fill up your pouch with them, come back and become rich and be financially independent and don't have to worry about food and house and that for the rest of your life. That was not considered greed to refuse a gift from heaven that you go somewhere in a land full of richness and you can get it without hitting anybody, without stealing, without committing robbery. It's just there for the taking. Of course, any intelligent man would take it. In the fame, in the beautiful Mahabharata, Karna, who is a proud warrior caste, pretends he is a nobody, he is a low caste, that's what it was in those days, and he determines Parashurama to give him the gift of Pashupata, the most terrible weapon which was available in those days, a sort of nuclear bomb of the day. And Rama, Parashurama, tells him the secret and then he submits him to a test but without telling him. He says, put your thigh like this so I can use your thigh as a pillow and sleep. And in the old days the disciples were so devoted to their gurus that if your guru asked you to be a doormat, you would turn into a doormat like people who are having an absolute unconditional surrender and devotion. So of course Karna says, sure Guruji, sleep on my thigh. And as the guru sleeps or pretends to sleep on the thigh, there's a worm that pierces his thigh. And he doesn't even have a jolt, although the pain is there and the blood is there because he doesn't want to disturb the sleep of his revered guru. And then the guru wakes up and sees the blood and says, what happened? And he says, well, a worm pierced my thigh while you're sleeping. And the guru says, why do you scream? Why didn't you jolt? You know, it's like, and he says, well, I didn't want to disturb your sleep, at which the guru says, you've tricked me, you've lied me. You are a fucking arrogant warrior because only an imbecile would have had such a pride that you would resist the pain just not to disturb my sleep. You are an imbecile. I can see now that you are a warrior. You are an aristocrat and you have that higher thing because he says any common sense person would have screamed and stopped the worm from acting. Common sense. Sometimes we miss the common sense. Sometimes people become so deep in their trip in their pride, in their things, that they miss simply the common sense. Like the Japanese Zen master, who when he was asked, what's the essence of your enlightenment? He said, when I'm hungry, I eat, and when I'm tired, I go to sleep. So simple as that. You know, you have to have common sense beyond everything. One of the teachers that I respected in Europe very much, Andre van Lisbeth of Belgium, one of the leading yoga teachers of Europe, in the, in the 20th century, he studied with many teachers and people started this crap with him. What's your lineage? What's your guru? And so on. And he told them, I studied with many gurus. I don't have just one guru. And they insisted. And then he said, you know, my most important guru of all the gurus in India was Swami Common Sense Ananda. When you learn from Swami Common Sense Ananda, then you are going to be a good yogi. 
like some people miss the common sense. I, I'm even recently, you know, I'm drowned by stories in which people sink into, into the ridiculous, into the... I, again, I won't give you hints because I'm going where I don't want to go. So let's leave it to that. The point is common sense. The Tibetans use a common sense simile. They say it's exactly like you return empty-handed from a land rich in precious gems, and this is a grievous failure. Like, if you return empty-handed from a land rich of gems, that's a grievous failure. A Christian mystic would say, I have gone to this rich land, but I have preferred to stay poor, but pure. Tibetans would say, you are an idiot. You should have taken a bag full of gems and lived your life comfortably. The fact that you punish yourself by putting poverty on you, it simply proves ultimately some masochism. You believe that staying poor, you are going to be more spiritual. That's your belief. Keep torturing yourself as much as you want with that belief, and I hope it serves you in the end. But the common sense says when it rains, enjoy the rain. Use the rain water. The rain is a gift of nature. Don't refuse the gifts of nature. So the simile is also provocative. But the point being, if being born a human being, one gives no heed to the spiritual teachings. That is the whole point. Like, as human beings, we have a consciousness. And together with this consciousness, there comes what we call a conscience. Am I living right? Am I doing the right thing? Am I not wasting my time? Is my carbon footprint too big? What am I doing in this world? Am I too selfish? Am I gathering too much resources for myself and other people don't have? There are people who live with two liters of water per day and I'm showering three times per day using 120 liters of water per day. Is that fair? Is this the way to live your life? It's okay just because I live in a tropical land where there is plenty of equatorial rain and water is not a problem anyway. And so like people keep asking themselves questions which denote consciousness and a certain conscience. It's true that there are people who have a reduced level of conscience and they commit crimes, they are selfish, they abuse other people, they are careless, and there are people who have a reduced level of consciousness. Like, they never really ask themselves too many questions. They did when they were 16, and then they said, ah, it's rubbish, it's not worth it. Just eat, drink, and be merry. That's all there is to life. In this way, you are aware from the lectures of Agama, such as the beautiful lecture on Ishvara Pranidhana, that for the human being, the aspiration is what makes a big difference because just the flesh becomes an animal. A child dropped in the jungle with animals, if it survives, it doesn't become Tarzan, it doesn't become Mowgli, it becomes a wolf or some other sort of animal. Therefore, it's not enough to have 46 chromosomes and a human DNA to become a human being. You need to do some morality, some ethics. There are some rules of the game which make a human being stand up on two legs 
and turn into a human being, start speaking articulate language, and all the rest of the things. What I'm trying to say is, it's a well-known thing in yoga that the conscience and the consciousness are very important for differentiating us from animals. It is the main differentiation from animals. <coughs> there are many, many borderline realms where you see human beings relapsing in the field of animality. Such as Karl Marx and the others of them who says, man is a social animal. But Jesus never defines the human being as an animal. Jesus defines the human being as a being which uproots themselves from animality. We originally were animals, but we are striving to become gods, angels, superhumans, something more evolved that, than an animal. So the human being is on the borderline. Half of us is still animal. That is why many of the animal instincts are indexed in the ascetic religions. Like eating is an animal thing. Just watch a dog. You give it food, it can eat until it bursts. You can control a dog with the food by giving it food at the right time. You can tame it, you can educate it, you can do things. But therefore, many spiritualists say, you should not eat, you should fast one day per week, you should refrain from good food, you should be vegetarian, you should be vegan, you should be fruitarian, you should be this, you should be that, especially like not to be an animal, because eating is dangerously close to animality. So is sleeping. Don't sleep like an animal. At least before you sleep, do some prayer, say your, do a meditation, consecrate, sleep less, practice lucid dreaming, like do whatever, but don't just sleep just like another animal. You eat, don't eat like an animal, don't sleep like an animal, don't have sex, it's only the animals that have sex, the angels don't, and we have to go towards a sexless world and so on. Everywhere in spirituality, you see that spiritualists have this abhorrence to the animal and rising to something superhuman, which is less animal. While, for example, the people who are anti-spiritual one way or another, they always praise animals, are ah, human beings. Human beings are damaged goods. Animals are beautiful people. It's the title of a documentary. No, animals are not as beautiful as humans, actually, in the eyes of God. In the eyes of Buddha and in the eyes of Jesus, humans are superior to the animals because the animals don't have a conscience and they can't get enlightened. And the people say, I would like to live a simple life like animals. That means Tibetan gurus would say that person was an animal until three lifetimes ago. The animal spirit is still powerful. That person is a very rough diamond. Only one or two facets of the, their diamond has been polished. That person is still 80% of an animal. And the animal tendencies are still very powerful in that person. And that person defends their animality like animality is something sacred and okay. Animality is like a launch pad. 
It's like a trampoline. We all started from there. But that's not where we are going. That's not the light in the end of the tunnel. The light in the end of the, the animal is behind us. In front of us there is something more than the animal. And that is why you will see often in life people oscillating between the superhuman, where I want to be as little animal as possible, and people praising the animality, the biological, the nature. Yes, nature is our mother and it's our cradle, but we don't have to stay in the cradle. We have to grow out of that cradle. We are again not just like animals. That's because we have a consciousness. And great yogis have said, if you think that life is only about eat, drink, be merry, if you think that life is only about eating, sleeping and procreating, then you should have been a gorilla. There are movies with Anthony Hopkins or I don't know whom, who goes and lives among the gorillas. And he feels an extraordinary peace and an insightful state of mind and he doesn't talk for five years and his clothes are shredding and he becomes a member of the gorilla tribe and it's like there is a big wisdom in that there isn't it's a relapsing into animality there are people who refuse to speak with other human beings they isolate themselves and then they live surrounded by dogs by cats by parrots by bears by God knows what other animals, you know, it's like, and they say, oh, but animals are so reconforting. That's a soul that has been an animal until recently, and it is fatally attracted by the abyss of unconsciousness. It's about attracted to relapse in this simplicity. Of course, being conscious is not as simple as that. Human life is complicated precisely because we have a consciousness and a conscience. And some people feel the burden of it so much that they say, I would prefer to be an animal. I would wake up in the morning, eat something, look at the sun and just live my life. That's biological life. That simply means you want to buck out. You, life, human life and consciousness is too much for you and you are chickening out of it. But of course, everybody knows it's temporary. We can't really go back. Evolution always goes forward further. That is why, of course, these are just shenanigans. These are just, you know, prima donna things, because ultimately, everybody has to bear the yoke of consciousness and go further. Just wait and see What's happening when you reach enlightenment? People always say, oh, I want to reach Samadhi, I want to reach... Do you know that is the next level? You don't probably have any suspicion what responsibilities come with that. So maybe it's time now to turn back and just go and eat and drink and be merry. Because when you become a Buddha, the responsibility becomes gigantic. A Buddha does not live with like human beings have a consciousness here and there and they say no I don't do this because human beings don't do this no I'm not going to behave like an animal and I'm not going to do this that's about it you have some responsibilities and sometimes you say it's so hard to stick to those but a Buddha 
has a thousand times more responsibilities than there because a Buddha feels that he's carrying the fate of the universe on his shoulders. And therefore a Buddha has to commit himself to pledge himself to a lifestyle which is much, much more demanding than what normal people do. Therefore, with higher consciousness, there comes higher responsibility as well. And the consciousness of God means total responsibility. The divine consciousness is omnipresent and responsible for everything that happens in this universe. It's very hard to see from the level of the normal consciousness. And that's why I'm saying it again and again. Human beings, especially those that go into spirituality, they definitely do not want to relapse into animality. While it's unrealistic and it lacks common sense to deny your animal nature, and that is not having met Swami Common Sense Ananda in your life, then of course some people make excesses, like there were people in the Christian mystics, the fathers of the desert, who wanted to break away from the earth. Being connected to the earth, they felt it keeps you connected to animality. Because, of course, the earth is activating your Muladhara chakra. The earth is giving you telluric energies. And those telluric energies make you more vital, more animal, and many of the primitive instincts and impulses of the human being are nourished by the earth. We are children of the earth and that's why we have this animalistic thing. And then there have been fathers of the desert who lived in a tree. In a tree. They never descended. They went five meters up in a tree and they lived there like a bird. And people, they couldn't even give them food. They were just picking up some figs from the tree and they wouldn't just come down. And others have gone farther. Simeon the stylite, somewhere in today's Syria or Lebanon, lived on a pole, on a pillar. He built a 30-meter tall pillar, which was the trunk of a cedar of Lebanon, a fir tree, like a very tall tree. And on top of that tree, he built a one square meter wooden platform where he couldn't lie down. And he lived on that for 30 years, on in a, up in the wind and in the rain and in the sunshine, in all the elements of the nature, without clothes on eventually not being able to ever stretch his legs or lie down. He lived there in prayer 10 hours per day, wanting to break away from the earth, to stop being an animal, which of course it's a very laudable, it's cosmic energy, it's the yang thing, it's a very laudable thing, but of course it's not the final solution, because that's not where humanity goes in a holistic understanding, in a tantric understanding of spirituality. But nevertheless, this illustrates pretty well what I say. There are people who are constantly tempted by their animality, which is behind them, and there are people who are constantly tempted by the light in the end of the tunnel, which is shedding off physicality and going to some higher existential condition. Tibetans don't speak about this, but they allude to it between the lines because it says, if after having been born a human being, one gives no heed to the spiritual teachings, like while you are a human being, free and well endowed, you should practice some spirituality. Not everybody is cut 
like Milarepa. Milarepa did black magic, killed people, felt very guilty, repented, and then he lived 30, 40 years of crushing self-efforts, of efforts of asceticism, which is unique. There are not a hundred people on the face of this earth that did the kind of asceticism which Milarepa did. He is one of the top runners in that. Milarepa had an aspiration which was triggered in the beginning from his sense of guilt and from his fear. He was afraid he would go to hell for a long, long time and he felt guilty because he practiced black magic, witchcraft, and he killed people. And thus, he became Ben and he realized his mother who asked him to do that also shared in that karma and she risked to go to hell and others who were in the game and therefore Milarepa suddenly felt responsible for himself, for his guilt, for his negative karma, for his mother, for his family and he proceeded to do incredible amounts of spiritual effort. The yogis are aware not all of you have the motivation of Milarepa. Maybe because you didn't kill 35 people. Then there are people who kill 35 people and they don't feel guilty about it. They don't have remorse. And thus, not everybody is like Milarepa. Milarepa was pushed in over into overdrive by his extreme actions. And because of this, Milarepa had a willpower, a determination, a stubbornness, and the power of tapas, which very few people on the surface of this earth have reached. So the yogis say, maybe you are not Milarepa, but you can perform 20 minutes of meditation every day. You can consecrate your day. You can consecrate a few important actions. You can from time to time maybe do some selfless service. Like no human being should live without a bit of spirituality. People say, I don't believe in God and I don't want to join any religion. Spirituality is not only religion. There are many things in spirituality. As long as you have a conscience, as long as you have consciousness, as long as you have a morality and ethics, as long as there is some form of love, pity, mercy, compassion, in your soul, as long as you love human beings and humanity, as long as you have some beneficent tendencies, you are already doing some spirituality. It's true, Milarepa and Ramakrishna are top runners. They are the gold medalists of spirituality and maybe not everybody is cut to be that in this lifetime. But that doesn't mean that if you cannot do what Milarepa did, you should do nothing. We always should strive to do our best. If I stay with Agama for three years and I'm doing five hours of yoga every day, and then one day I simply notice that I'm bored, I'm fed up, it's really not me, I'm using sheer willpower and self-discipline to make myself do my yoga, then I have to look in the mirror and to ask myself, who am I? What am I doing here? What do I really want to do? When I will die, where do I want to be? 
Do I want to die in the lotus pose with my soul going out through Brahmarandra and be rich salvation in the hour of my death? Or what do I want to do? Do I want to die in fear in a hospital bed, soiling my trousers while I'm dying and so on? What do I really want to do with myself? Do I want, like, everybody should make an, a self-analysis, use their consciousness, awareness, and conscience, and eventually you can find your place in life, in spirituality. Of course that Ramakrishna, Jesus, Rumi, Saint Teresa of Avila, to give a female name so you don't feel discriminated there, they would like you to do as much spirituality as possible. But they are aware not everybody is cut for that. One of the disciples of Saint Francis of Assisi said, being celibate, hungry, all day long, it drives me nuts. I want to have a woman, I want to have children, I want to have a family. And Saint Francis of Assisi gave him his blessing. He said, blessed be you, go and multiply as God says in his commandments, thrive and blossom, be like an emperor among men, be successful. No, like there is nothing wrong with it. Don't try to do what I, Francis of Assisi, does if you don't have my stomach. If you don't have my knees, you can't do what I do. That's exactly the correct attitude in spirituality. So the Tibetan yogis don't say you have to do what Milarepa did. If you don't do yoga eight hours every day, you are a loser and you come empty-handed from a land full of gems and stones. They simply say you have to pay heed, you have to heed to the spiritual teachings. Like Buddha said, practice loving kindness, exert compassion, try to forgive the wrongs which have been done to you, try to forgive and go further. Maybe you can't do that 100%, but if you do it 50%, this world is a better place. Again, some people may have been an animal three lifetimes ago. Their spirit is still very inexperienced and a bit primitive. Their diamond is not very polished. They have many animal characteristics still in their soul. But it doesn't mean that those people, if they don't yearn to reach nirvana big time, <coughs> they are lost and they are off the path. Never have this exclusivistic black and white thing. If you are not totally there, you are a loser and you are not worth being considered. Maybe all your spirituality is that you want to spare other animals' lives and your spirituality is that you are vegetarian. Not because, in terms of health, today there is a raging controversy if vegetarianism is really better than non-vegetarian. In yoga we believe it is, even from a health standpoint. But there are people, doctors, experts, who don't believe it. That's not the point. There are many people who are vegetarian because they say, if I can eat a cucumber and a carrot, then why should I eat a chicken? Let the chicken be. Leave the chicken be. If you can live without cutting the chicken, let the chicken live their lives. Stop this industry of killing hundreds of millions, billions of chicken every year just because people are bloody tigers and they want to stuff their faces with 
stop killing the chicken. No. So there are, even this is a spirituality. I feel friendly towards all forms of life. I would like to kill as little as possible during my life. This is not my carbon footprint. This is my blood footprint. I would like my blood footprint to be as small as possible in my life. If I can live without killing, then why should I kill for fun? Just because I love pork or beef steaks, I can sacrifice my liking and save some animals which will not have to be killed because there is one consumer less. If there would be one billion consumers less, that would make a huge difference on the face of this earth. And that is why, please realize, spirituality is many things. Spirituality is doing karma yoga and selfless service. Spirituality is doing seva, service of spiritual kind. Spirituality is giving food to a Buddhist monk who needs some food to be able to continue his life and meditate. Spirituality is raising a spiritual child or two or five or ten. Spirituality means many things. You can be spiritual in a religion. You can be spiritual just by being vegetarian. It's a matter of your conscience. But the Tibetans have said it very clearly. If you are born as a human being and you don't do anything spiritual, then you should have been born a tiger. You should have been born an ox. You should have been born a chimpanzee. You should have been born a dolphin or something. You really didn't need to be born. You are wasting. You are wasting a place. It's like you take a place in a cinema hall and then you fall asleep during the movie. Get out and let somebody else watch the movie who would have liked to be there. No, therefore, if you are born on earth and you are a human being and no one slave and not handicapped in any major way, some spirituality is necessary. And if you don't do it, Tibetans say, this is a grievous failure. Not a failure. It's a grievous failure. It's a severe, it's an ugly, it's a pathetic failure. And you can see how much this happens in Kali Yuga. Please realize, most of you are Caucasian people and your ancestors come from Europe or thereabout. Your ancestors six centuries ago, willy-nilly, were practicing spirituality. The Christian church with its oppressive thing made that everybody had to go to church and do their thing. And people did spirituality, willy-nilly. So there was some spiritual practice. Today, many people live openly without any spiritual interest. And that is, of course, a major issue in the evolution of this end of Kali Yuga. The second grievous failure. If, after having entered the door of the yoga system, one returns to the life of the common householder, one resembles a moth plunging into the flame of a lamp, and this is a grievous failure. Here, you have to interpret this thing from the standpoint of traditional Buddhism, where monkhood, monastery, spiritual practice was very opposed to living in a village and being a common householder. I insist on that adjective. It's a common householder because you can be a spiritual householder. You can be a householder like the father and mother of Virgin Mary or something. Those 
are today praised as saints because they are not common householders. They were spiritual people that gave a very spiritual outcome to the planet Earth, even through their family life. So it's not absolutely that Tibetan Buddhism is against family life. It's against ignorant, passive, non-spiritual, common householder thing, relapsing in animality and doing zero spirituality. And you have to interpret it both in the prism of Tibet, Buddhism, and ascetic practice. This is making it a little bit black and white, while, of course, in a tantric school, you would have to mention many other details which are not mentioned here. So what he says, what they say here is, if after having entered the door of the yoga system, one returns to the life of the common householder, one resembles a moth plunging into the flame of a lamp. It is a common idea in Buddhism, some forms of Hinduism and others, Jainism and other religions, that this world is like a Fata Morgana. It's glamour. It's Hollywood. People read a book by Fleming, by Jan Fleming, a James Bond book, or people read a book by Barbara Cartland, some romantic novel, and they think that's what life is going to be. And in the end of the life, everybody is bitter and has bitten the dust plenty because the life is more like Dr. Zhivago's life rather than the novels of James Bond and Barbara Cartland. But people like to live into this fantasy that maybe it's going to be good for me. And there are so many Hollywood movies which all the time advise you indirectly that people should be given hopes. Even when the hopes are stupid, even when the hopes are foolish and unrealistic, you should keep soothsaying and you should tell white lies and give all life. It's going to be okay. And everybody sees the person is dying. And instead of telling them you are dying, focus on your crown chakra so at least you can save it in the last moment, people say it's going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay. That's bullshit. It's bullshit talk, you know. Like both need a cold shower. It's not going to be okay. With this okay thing, people keep dying. I remember a very low quality Western movie, which was a comedy actually. And there is a guy teaching a very naive young Englishman to shoot a pistol, to become a gunslinger. And this guy, you know, takes him first and he says, you know what an, what's an optimist? What's the definition of an optimist? And the guy says no. And the guy says an optimist is a guy lying in a coffin with a brick under his head and the, and the graveyard is full of optimists. Optimists keep dying. You know, people say, oh, I'm going to do this. Oh, it's going to be like, they die. Everything goes just in the same place. You have to cultivate the middle path. Just as a Greek philosopher said, don't laugh, don't cry, but understand. That's the middle path. Neither to be optimistic nor pessimistic. It's true, you have to have a positive thinking because that helps. That's like creative visualization. But unrealistic optimism when everything is lost and you go on saying it's going to be okay, that's bullshit. It's just Svadhisthana people dreaming ridiculous, stupid stuff which is never going to happen. That is why... The world is often compared to a Fata Morgana. 
And this comparison is not coming from this text, it's older. I don't remember who gave it first in the Oriental philosophy, that people resemble with a moth plunging into the flame of a lamp. Like you think you are going to get something very special if you will have, you know, you are not a bastard that makes abortions and disrespects life. You are natural, you are not using condoms, you are not perverted. And then you become some sort of Amish and you have ten children. And you consider yourself very righteous and a good person because, lo, you've made, you know, whatever Mother Nature gave to you, that's what you did, you know, you live in harmony with the nature. And you have so many children in the house, you can make a football team out of them, you know. And that you are very proud of it. And people say, you know, I'm going to live by the nature, I'm not going to, I'm going to be happy. And not only Tibetan yoga, but most forms of spirituality say, you are like a moth plunging in the flame of a candle. Which simply means you are going to burn your wings, and then you are going to burn totally. Most people start with these unrealistic, optimistic things, like life is going to give you something. My first spiritual teacher wrote an incredible page, which I found after his death among his papers, and in that paper he spoke about the hope, the spiritual hope, and he was doing his Ishvara Pranidhana, he was doing his surrender, his devotion to God, and he said, ultimately, you will discover that life gives so little, and that little which it gives, it makes it so dearly paid. You pay through the nose for the little which you get. That's why Swami Shivananda says, eating, sleeping, procreating, a little laughter and a lot of tears. Is this all there is to life? This is the problem. Life, when it is lived with unwise expectations, when it is lived without knowing who you are, what to expect from this universe, life becomes very painful in the end because it promises a lot and it gives very little. And the little which it gives is paid at a very high rate of exchange. And that is why many sages have said, many men and women who practiced wisdom, they simply said, is this all there is? Like, are we going to swarm all seven billion of us through this world again and again for millions of years? That's all that we can get. Some live in the Stone Age, some live in the mm, antique Rome, and some live in the 21st century, and the only difference is some technology that some people are driving carts with oxen and some people are driving cars and airplanes. <coughs> is this all just some technological advancement and life is just the same? That's why, realize, there are people who not that they cannot see the beauty of life, but they simply say you have to be realistic and have common sense. There is a greater good. There is a greater happiness. There is a greater freedom. And those things are not always found in what you directly see. There, there is a lot of dream. There is a lot of Fata Morgana. People think there is some water and we are dying in the desert. And then they run five kilometers and there was no water. 
it was just Fata Morgana giving the impression of water in the desert. That's how life is. Many sages have realized that life promises many things and when you get there, it's not there. You know, it's like it's something else. Family life, children, career, fame, power, money, name, pleasures, this, that. Many people are searching for them. Almost all of us, we search for them because we are constantly catering to the needs of our brain and physical body. But it doesn't mean it's going to make us happy in the long run, and it doesn't mean it has any deeper meaning. And that's why this comparison has been used. In a tantric school, I don't want to use this comparison as to tell you, stay away from the world. Because in Tantra, we don't believe in that. In Tantra, we say, when you deal with the world, deal with the world armed with consciousness, armed with awareness, armed with the knowledge of the author of nature. There's nothing wrong with nature, but as long as you don't know who created nature and for what purpose, you can't understand the nature of the game. And that is why nature is fine as soon as you understand what it is and who created it and what's its purpose. That's why Tantra says don't run from nature. Study it. Analyze it. Use it. Tap it. Nature is fantastic. Nature is a springboard. It is this body made of flesh that you put stand on its head and thus you do shirshasana and your crown chakra gets activated and you get more awareness and awakening. There's nothing wrong with my body. My body is a wonderful instrument once I understand what it's made for. My body is like the tip of the iceberg. My body is the visible part of my spirit. And by putting my body in the lotus pose or in the headstand or something or by simply cultivating a body language which is positive, by expressing with my body compassion, noble feelings, intelligence and other things, instead of expressing with my body depression, wickedness, stupidity, or others. It's my body that expresses. You look on the face of some people and you say, man, you re really look dumb. I bet your IQ is way lower than the average, you know? It's like, of course, it's not politically correct to do that today. But many people think it, nevertheless. They look at somebody and they say, look at that person. They reek with stupidity, you know? It's like you can see the stupidity oozing from them. So why should I express with my body stupidity, wickedness, depression, when I can express compassion, noble feelings, intelligence, a certain higher standard of humanity. That is why, again and again, in a tantric understanding, it's not that you are told, stay away from the world. You are simply said, when you deal with the world, make sure that you understand what the nature of the game is, because if not, you are like a blind person fumbling through a pharmacy. You are going to get over some acid or explosive and blow yourself or burn yourself or poison yourself. Like, you have to know where you are going. That's why we recommend to people who want to act in the world, learn karma yoga, 
learn to perform consecrations, learn how to deal with a higher consciousness and try to reach some level of awakening so that you stop being blind while you are in the world. You want to have children, it's fine. You can bring up children like Ramakrishna and Milarepa that will be a blessing for this world. But for this, you have to be a conscious parent. If as soon as your child is born, you pump it full of vaccines and antibiotica, you screwed 25% of your child's chances to become the next Milarepa or Ramakrishna because you are depleting it. Your child is human born, free, so and so, but not well endowed anymore because you screwed its body already because during the pregnancy you had the wrong diet. After the child was born, you pumped it up with antibiotica and vaccines. Your, your child is already 25% handicapped because you gave it a bad start. If you would be a responsible, spiritual, knowledgeable Buddha, mother and father, you would take some bold steps and you say, we make a child, it is conceived at the right time, we invoke the proper soul to come be incarnated in our family, it is born in an astrological sign and in a gender of our choice. While the woman was pregnant, she practiced visualizations, good diet, this and that. When the child was born, it was born in a harmonious way. Afterwards, the first years of life were fully supportive of spirituality and growth and compassion. And this, in India, they say the mother is your first guru. And the soul which your mother shapes in you up till the age of seven is like the core of your psychology. That soul you are going to have all your life. If your mother is a drunk and a drug addict and beats you up and is a bitch and a liar and having a totally decomposed life, that will reflect on the child who by the age of seven will have wickedness, malice, lie, mistrust and a lot of other shadows in the very core of their personality. Then they come to Swami Vivekananda to do yoga, all day long full of mistrust, all day long full of doubts, all day long full of anger, all day long full of all sorts of other frustrations. You got a wrong start. Then the work with yoga is much more difficult than with one who had a good karma and got a good start in the game. So, it's not running from the world. You want to be in the world, have children, do something, it's fine. But do it right. Because it's Kali Yuga and most people tend to do things wrong. You can be a spiritual king. Always remember that Shambhala, that is the spiritual guiding entity on this planet, organ, institution, Shambhala condones the path of the monk and the path of the king. Some men and women are supposed to be monks and nuns because they have powerful ascetic instincts and they want to stay away from family life, things like this, and they want to rather meditate, be contemplative, and some people can't understand that. But there exists also the path of the king. If you don't want to be a monk, then be a king, which simply says, do karma yoga. The king was the anointed of God. In the old days, the kings were not indifferent bastards, cold, selfish people, spoiled aristocrats. 
the ideal of the kingly institution, the, the monarchy, uh, which is the evolution from democracy for Greeks, was that the king must be a man or a woman of God, like serving a Buddha, an enlightened being that lives a physical life and does karma yoga, does the good things. For example, in Thailand, the people of Thailand believe that their present king is a bodhisattva. That's why they venerate him, because he is not just a temporal person. He is a spiritual person, and in the 60 years while he was on the throne, he did not do anything to the Thai nation that denied that. And that's why the Thai people love him and respect him. They say, what a man could have had so much power for so long time and not become corrupted by that power. That's why they are very respectful. They say only high spirits become that and it's like a test from the gods. And if you manage not to collapse to vanity and arrogance and pride and you can keep common sense, then indeed you are a success. So the tantric tradition says the world is not wrong. The world is just having some rules. Like when you sail on the ocean, every professional sailor knows some hundred rules which prevent you from drowning prematurely. When you cross the jungle with a machete in your hand, there are a hundred rules which every explorer knows which prevents you from being bitten by cobra snakes or God knows what and not dying early. When you want to cross on foot a desert, there are a hundred rules about how you cross the desert. To live on earth, to live in the physical world, there are a hundred and twelve rules. And that's what spiritual people say. Once you get to understand the rules of the game, then you can be an informed user. Almost everybody is an unconscious sleepwalker. Stop being a sleepwalker. If you want to live in the world, live in the world, change the world, interact with the world, influence the world. There is nothing wrong about that. But do it in a state of full awareness and full conscience. There, thus, there exists a spiritual life in the world. Tantra brings this alleviation. It's not only monks and people living in monasteries and in caves that can do spirituality. It is householders that live in the world. But then those are enlightened householders. They are not common householders. And this rule, this statement from Tibetan yoga says, if after having entered the door of the yoga system, which means you heard a guru preaching the great fundamental truths, you did some practice and you saw that it works, if you had a contact with spirituality, spirituality of a good quality, practical spirituality, has been given to you and the door has been opened for you, because not everybody makes it to a place like this. If you had this grace, Tibetan yoga says it would be a failure, it would be a stupid thing to say, now I want to, fo to forget about everything and just throw myself blindly like a moth into a flame. Carry, even if you go back to the world, 
We are all in the world after all, but let's put it more emphatically because some people consider that Agama is like a soap bubble separated from the world. Even if you go totally back to the world, take the wisdom with you. Take some knowledge with you. I've seen just these days, you know, there was as a person who got diagnosed with some dengue fever or something, and they chickened out completely, and then they write me a text message where they say, I'm running like a beaten dog with a tail between my legs. And then that makes me doubt, like, what did you learn? Why did I speak about so many years? What is your practice? You know, it's like we tell to people all the time, if you get dengue fever, if you treat it, it will hold one week. And if you don't treat it, it will hold seven days. There is no treatment for the dengue fever. So going to the hospital, if you get a dengue fever, is the most stupid thing that you can do. Because on top of the fact that they can't help it, they are going to stuff you with antibiotica and other poisonous things. Because they can't keep you there without doing anything. They have to pretend. They have to make something, because otherwise it's like we are useless. They do something. That something is like, there is an expression in my country which said it's exactly like you apply a massage to a wooden leg. Like you have a prosthetic leg and you give it a massage. What's the function of a massage to a wooden leg? That's the function of medical treatments to dengue. It's a, it's a massage to a wooden leg. But, you know, people get a massage to the wooden leg. It gets worse. Well, then it's like, if you have been to yoga, give your body a chance. Give your energy, give nature, give your mind, give the power within you a chance to show you how wonderful it is. I'm not saying, again, from the very first conference of yoga, I'm not saying that people should not go to hospitals and not do medical treatments and so on. I occasionally use the services of hospitals for one thing or another when there are things which are not of the competence of Yoga. No, if I want to take a HIV test, I can't do it with yoga. There is no HIV test in yoga. So if I want to make sure that I'm an HIV negative person, I go to a laboratory, take a blood test like everybody, and I get an answer in two hours. You know, it's like I'm not saying that medicine is bad, and exactly like I'm not saying that the world is bad, but what this statement says is. When you come to spirituality, take some wisdom with you and use it for the rest of your life. It's a pity to go through spirituality, to be in a yoga school for a week or for a month or for a season or for several seasons and then to plunge in the flame of a candle like a blind moth. The moth is an ignorant animal. It sees the light and the heat and it goes towards it and then the inertia is too big, and when it's too late, it discovers it got too hot, and the wings are burned already, and the poor moth dies in a tragic way, because it was hypnotized by the light and the heat of that flame. Many human beings are hypnotized by the light and the heat of some things in life, and they think those things are going to make them happy. But yogis say, without spirit, Nothing makes you happy. If you do not find your own root, all the flames and all the lights and all the heats in this world become a pain. They are not a blessing 
they are a pain. There is something which should come before going into the flame. That is wisdom. That is some degree of spiritual realization. Then you can confront the world. When Ramakrishna got married to Sarada Devi, he told her, now since I am your husband, if you want to draw me in the world of illusion, it's fine. Like Ramakrishna said, you want me to stop being a guru and just to be some anonymous Bengali husband in India, I can do that. Because basically Ramakrishna said, I've reached the state of Samadhi. I'm enlightened. You can drag me through shit and it won't make any difference to my immortal soul. But of course, it was not the same thing for Sarada Devi, who at that time had not yet reached her state of Samadhi. So she was unenlightened, so for her it wouldn't have been the same at all. And in this way, it was like a spiritual test for her. And fortunately, she was a modest Indian woman, and she said, no, Ramakrishna Ji, I am your wife, I follow you. Wherever you go, I follow. And this made Sarada Devi become one of the greatest female saints of the 19th century, because she trusted in the great man that was Ramakrishna, and she was not plunging into the flame. Yes, she had tendencies. While she was still not yet enlightened, probably after three, four, five, I don't even remember the timeline of years being married to Ramakrishna, which was not easy because Ramakrishna was a freak, and being married to this weirdo was not always easy. And then at some point she comes to Ramakrishna straight after she probably built it up and built it up and built it up. And at some point, if I remember correctly, she was a Sagittarian, so she was a bold, impulsive woman, fiery. And she comes to Ramakrishna and she says, I want a child from you. Like, that's a story which we hear often. There are women who say, I'm bored, I need a child. Give me a child and a little house in the bottom of your garden, in the back of your garden. Then I, like, sometimes some women believe that the child is a living doll and it will take boredom away from you. You are going to have a, a nice living toy to play with. And of course, later that child can become Jack the Ripper and then you are in hell. But uh, that people don't see that part of the flame. It's like people are attracted by the... So even Sarada Devi, people can say, wow, he, she was living with one of the greatest, if not the greatest spiritual master of India of the 19th century. She was in the hub of all things. She was in the humming eye of the cyclone, you know. You couldn't be closer to greatness than Sarada Devi was, or than Kasturba Gandhi was, or others. And yet Sarada Devi could not see the greatness. She was a human being. She was not yet spiritually polished completely. And she said, you know, I would rather have a baby. And then Ramakrishna had to kind of use a trick, which again, in India is not considered to be a very guilty because lovers in India have a very teasing relationship with each other. It's a relationship that has a lot of anahata and playfulness to it. And Ramakrishna using that playfulness says, Mother, you will have so many children that you will not even understand the language which they speak one day. And of course he meant disciples. And later when Ramakrishna was dead, there was some Frenchman or some Englishman who was trying to speak with Sarada Devi and she couldn't speak even English. She just spoke Bengali. Then she lifted her arms up and she said, Yay, I remember the day when the blessed Ramakrishna told me you'll have so many children that you won't even understand 
some of their languages. Like now she felt fulfilled. Now she was a saint. She was a great spiritual teacher. People called her mother. There were hundreds of people in that ashram and she was cooking for all of them and caring for all of them and she felt like finally she had the hundred children which biologically she didn't have but actually she didn't need to have. Ramakrishna told her, why do you need to have any biological children when you are on the path to greatness and you are going to have so many spiritual children, you are going to be venerated by a whole generation. Thus, as you can see, here the perspective differs from person to person, but remember this, take from yoga some wisdom. Sometimes the great sages have seen people behaving like a moth plunging into the flame of a lamp. Like It is expected that a person that had some touch with wisdom should know better, should be a bit more skillful in dealing with the world, not fall for the very first trap, not fall for the very first candle flame, not fall for the first Fata Morgana. Like, ask yourselves, who am I? Do I really want to do this? Where will I be in 20 years if I do this? Is this really the thing which will give me happiness when I will die? Will this be the thing which will be the success of my life? And so on and so forth. Thus, this is a beautiful thing. It says taking contact with yoga and any other practical spirituality is a gift, is a chance. We know that not all of you will be great yogis 20 years from now. It's simply a fact of life. I'm not cynical, I'm not sarcastic, I actually personally feel very compassionate about this, that not all of you will have reached spiritual greatness 20 years from now. Because if it were according to my heart, I wish that all of you would see what Ramakrishna has seen, what Milarepa has seen, and all of you would witness what this big fascination of spirit is. It is not going to happen for all of you in this life with sadness. I, I personally feel it in that way, although it's a tempered sadness, it's a metaphysical sadness, because that's the way the world is. But at least having been in touch with yoga, with a tradition of wisdom, Take some wisdom, drink as much wisdom. Like a camel that is about to cross the desert, drink profusely. Stock some water in your hunchback because you need to have it for the long run. And if any one of you has the possibility, from time to time come and reload your batteries. The outer world is wearing your confidence. It's wearing out your faith. It's wearing out your hope. I have witnessed in my life many people giving up spiritual practice because suddenly they started feeling that they will not make it. In the moment when people lost their hope, they stopped every spiritual effort and they turned away. That is not wisdom. There is wisdom in the common sense 
and in the middle path. Don't jump from doing eight hours of yoga per day to running away. And you know, I've seen people, they've done yoga solidly. When they gave up, they even gave up vegetarianism. I told them, what's wrong with vegetarianism? Even if you don't want to do yoga and meditation. Vegetarianism is not only for yogis. It's a good thing to do anyway. And I remember you were very puristic and you were very moral and ethical. Why give up everything in one stroke? Don't jump in the extremes. The mind is always made of the extremes. I'm doing yoga like crazy or I'm not doing at all. You can be disappointed in many, many ways in your life, but you constantly have to keep a line of defense. Like there is constantly in me a certain amount of hope, a certain amount of positive thinking. No, I'm not an unrealistic optimist lying in a coffin with a brick under my head. I'm a realistic, positive thinker who wants to think positively and at the same time knows. There is no need for me to lose my hope, to give up everything, to break into little pieces. There is always, I have a further line of defense where I can simply regroup my defenses and wait. There are, there are times in your life where you can have a very nasty astrological transit and then for two, three years or more, things can turn very shitty for you. It happens. Almost everybody has got good periods and bad periods like the biorhythm, only that in astrology the biorhythm is extended to way more factors than just some simple sinus curves of 28 days or something. It's way more complicated, but it's still the same principle. Therefore, <coughs> it's normal for human beings to have good days, bad days, good years, bad years. When you have a bad year, you don't give up everything and you sink and drown. When you have a bad year, you stay put. You lie low, exactly like a military commander that cannot attack, but then he goes into defensive. Stay into defensive. Stay put. Put your heels into the ground. Hold, hold the fort. Hold your ground. Wait. Brighter days will come. Wait. As you wait, it's like a farmer in the winter. The farmer in the winter doesn't fret and say, why isn't my corn sprouting and growing? Because then his wife comes and slaps him over the head and says, are you delirious? It's winter, for God's sake. You didn't even plant the corn. Wait. Or you planted it in November, but it's going to sprout in March only. Wait. No, that's exactly the same he thing here. In spirituality, life is not always going up and up and up. There are sometimes plateaus. There are sometimes even small relapses. There are good periods, not so good periods. You have to be able to keep a constant aspiration, a constant effort, and not to plunge in the flame like a blind moth. Oh, quickly, quickly, I don't think yoga is going to work for me. How did you think it was going to work for three years, and now suddenly you lost it? That's a very unwise, extreme, no common sense vision on spirituality. Spirituality is something which has to hold you for the rest of your life. There is much, much to spirituality which needs to be 
understood and the Tibetan yogis had a huge experience, a huge heart about these things. That's why take to heart their advice. With this we have concluded the second out of 13 advices in the 13th chapter, the 13 grievous failures. Let us remain in silence for a couple of minutes to let the spiritual truth sink in peacefully, after which we'll stop for tonight and part. And that will do. With this we finish. Namaste. Thank you for joining tonight's satsang.